Today we have Eric Innes, owner founder of Coastline Canine down in Naples, Florida, joining us. We're going to be talking about protection dogs and how protection dogs can be implemented into your home, helping you to feel more confident and safe knowing that your family is protection protected. Hey. Hello. How's it going? It's going here in uh, North California at the moment. Very nice. Very nice. Thank you for joining us tonight. No, of course. Appreciate it. Thank you. So this last year has been absolutely crazy. You know, people are feeling anxious, worried about the future and wanting to feel more secure with themselves and with their families. Can you talk about um, how implementing a protection dog into your life is helpful in that way? Of course. Um, so what we do is, is primarily what we're known for is uh, family protection dogs, right? Um, throughout the past year or extended period of time, actually the past handful of years, people are starting to come around to the idea of that they can have a dog that can be a family companion, member, um, however, have the ability to also be a family guardian or a family protection dog. And people are starting to come around the idea that what was originally once thought that was just, you see, the canine means police or military, right? Um, people start inquiring more about having a dog that fits the role of a family member, but also does something for you, right? So people generically tend to have, I think on average right now, people have the equivalent amount of dogs as they do children. And however, most of the dogs and most of the breeds, as you could probably understand, there's not much reciprocation in ability uh, outside of just um, stimulation or, or, or companionship or being able to pet this dog and this dog makes you laugh and do it. So there's not much of a um, ability that the dog can do for the owners, uh, but they still have to maintain this pet, right? They still got to eat, they still got to walk, they still got to engage it, they still have to provide shelter to it. So people are coming around that it is possible to have their cake and eat it too and having a purpose-driven dog. Now that there's nothing to say like, you can have whatever pet you want and breeds and different dogs are fun and they do different stuff. But the idea in a, in a ecosystem or a, or a society that um, where self-reliance starts becoming a something to consider, um, I think it's becoming more, more uh, of, of a topic that is digestible for people to go, well, well, maybe I should get a dog that can that I can uh, receive some peace of mind because the dog can do X, Y, and Z, and maybe I should stop relying on other people, or or, or I should stop assuming that the cards are always stacked in my favor, and I live in this nucleus of everything is copacetic. Um, we saw a lot of that, especially once the COVID happened and then there became restrictions upon emergency services or police departments and they're like hey if it's not 
if it's not right, like this ter certain type of crime, then don't call us because you're just going to bog up the lines and we're probably not going to respond because we don't have the manpower. So uh, as of recently, I think people are starting to go, well, you know what, like the best way that I can be proactive and the best way I can receive peace of mind is if, if I take that under my own uh, responsibility, as in it's a variable that I can, I can control instead of, okay, well, I have a phone, I can call the police, and I am just assuming that I am priority, right? And I'm assuming that they're going to be efficient. And I'm assuming, right, that, that everything is going to work out and people are going to do their jobs to help me, um, which in reality couldn't be further from the truth. Right. And, and that side. So, um, so yeah, as, as it becomes more popular, it's just definitely something we try to educate on and it's definitely something that we provide on, um, you know, for the past few years. Mm -hmm. So say you're thinking about getting a protection dog. Um, you have a family of small kids, you bring in this, you know, high quality, highly trained dog into the family. How do you know that that dog might, uh, like is safe around your small children? Okay, great question. So majority of people have other dogs. They have other animals, cats, right? They, they have children or they can have no children. They just have a, you know, multiple people inside of their family ecosystem. Um, one thing we do when we screen clients um, is we kind of try to go in depth of what their ecosystem looks like right what's the age of your kids what's um what's your kids experience do you have other dogs um you know what's the size uh what's the layout what's the day-to-day -day? well then we go and we don't just go oh you want a dog that protects here you go right and throwing spaghetti at the wall we really like to take a look at like well, what's the pace of your life like what's the schedule what is the priorities that you want in this dog? So we can go, okay, temperament, demeanor, size, all of these are variables. And we go and we start matching uh, the characteristic of the dog for that ecosystem. And an example that, I, that I've given before is I've had a, a client who's a, a bachelor, right? And he's pretty retired, um, but he wanted a family protection dog. Um, just to have because he wanted to be reliable on his own and he just drives two seater cars right so so not only do we have to worry about the or consider the character aspect uh, but we have to go well probably an 85 90 pound malinois is probably not the best fit right so then we're like well what about a pocket rocket right little female and and right because it, it makes sense in efficiency for transport and stuff like that um or you have other families Right. And they want a dog that is I've had other clients who are like, you know what, I want I want a beast. I want I want something that is 90 miles an hour because I'm 90 miles an hour. Right. Like that's how I operate. I don't want a lazy dog. Right. Like I want this dog to force me to get up and like go on a hike. I want this dog to nudge me and go like, let's go do stuff. And so naturally we go all right, well, the, the Malinois that is probably more tapered and tame, 
um, we'll, we'll go to a higher drive dog. So when it deals with kids and safety, um, one of our requirements is that the dog must be um, social, right? These, these are not police dogs or military dogs that are, uh, that are failing some type of selection and then, okay, let's put them with a family. No, these, these dogs are their purpose, one, when they're bred, right? These are qualities that they're bred for and that we, we select and pull from our overseas partners is that we're, we're looking for, okay, what dog meets all these characteristics? And then on top of that, what dog's been raised in a household, right? From birth, which one has been alongside, a, you know, an elementary school kid, like, right? And then we're going, you know what, boom, we're, we're kind of plugging and playing and matching, and then what we do is making sure that the, the right dog goes to the right family. They're safe. Um, they're not over the top. They're, they're not a liability. They don't have um, resource guarding issues. They don't have any type of reactivity. Um, and in the process, naturally, like you weed those out and we're not, they're not a part of our program. Um, and then once we understand what that family dynamic looks like, then we start customizing for the real world prac app. Like how does this family move and shake, right? Like how, who's who in the zoo, right? Like, who, right. And, um, and that's how we pair these dogs, whether they have children, don't have children, whether they have newborns, whether they're expecting kids on the way, all of this, all of these variables is something that we go through and we want to make sure that the, correct dog is getting matched to the correct ecosystem and the expectations are understood. So it's not, Hey, there's a dog that does stuff, right? Like mm -hmm. protection isn't the primary ability that we're just going, Hey, this dog protects stuff. You want one? It looks this color. Great. Here you go. It's not like that. It's more, okay, character, temperament, demeanor without sacrificing protection. Color, size, gender, that's all byproduct. That's all like icing on the cake, mm -hmm. right? And then, and then we start um, matching all of those characteristic variable like a zipper, right? And then they all line up and then that's who we start helping uh, select and pairing. So, if you want a child safe dog, then naturally we're going to provide a child safe dog. If you want a dog that is a, a missile, right? And, and that's not a consideration and you don't care, right? Some of these are a la carte. So if you're like, that's not a concern of mine. I just want the, the I want what I want. Um, and I want these abilities, these attributes, then we'll be upfront and say, you know what? This dog maybe is not a social. But that's also because that's your ecosystem. You want a dog that's not a social. Maybe it's just you. Maybe it's a piece of property. You don't, you, your requirement is not to do this. Mm -hmm. So each client is completely different, just like each person's ecosystem is completely different. And so um, we match and we a la carte those specific dogs to those requests. Mm -hmm. So 
I imagine when your brain say you want a missile type dog mm -hmm. and um, you, you know, you work out, you know, logistics and all of that. Yeah. Um, is the owner say I call you, hey, Eric, I want a mm -hmm. missile of a dog. Can you yeah. train me that the owner mm -hmm. uh, to handle this missile inside my home? Yes, 100%. So part of our program, um, outside of or what's incorporated in the the financial investment and the logistics is that just like we're here in California, um, typically three to five days, um, we do a turnover, we do an integration, we're in the mix, we're in the house, we are at breakfast, right? We're, where you go get your coffee, we're going to go get coffee. Like where you go to get groceries, we're going to get groceries. Like we're going and holding a miniature kind of like trainer handler camp right mm -hmm. going from this is a leash right this is this is how you hold a leash right and then we lego and build blocks systematically to the point where after that week on the initial integration like that owner is going we're hands off and we're observing and they're going to go eat where they go eat they're going to go shop where they go shop they're going to go get in the car how they're going to get situated and we provide all these experience of maybe you should slice the pie this way, or maybe you should put the dog in this way, or maybe your mind, you should be considerate of this. So 100%, what we do not do is go, hey, we have a dog for you. Come pick it up. Like, like, and unfortunately, there are a lot of companies out there that do, right? Like, Oh, you want a Malinois? Here, the price is this. Great. Here's your dog. There's a lot of companies out there that do that. So we we are we are in it for the long haul as much as we possibly can. We teach you how to how to drive. We teach you how to brake. We teach you how to do all of that. So that way, when we um, when we leave initially, because a lot of times we we come out more than once right? In different phases for integration. When we leave, like you're confident, you're comfortable. We've done protection scenarios with you, right? And I'm not talking like, hey, send your dog or like on a bite sleeve on a soccer field, like watch your dog bite. We're talking like, how do you, where your dog is probably best suited in your household to stay, like where you should put a kennel, like what, what is it going to, look like when a when a dog asphyxiates on someone like how do you how do you go from the dog being in a mode of suspicion to back to uh default obedience and neutrality we show the handler hey this is you can have confidence because this is what a hidden sleeve uh civil um carjacking scenario might look like right this this might be what a just escalated confrontation uh, of a verbal back and forth jujitsu looks like, but it may not cause for you to incorporate your dog at all. Mm -hmm. Right. There's sometimes where it's like you, it, you don't need to apply your dog. Right. And, and so we teach a lot of situational context um, and when and where and how you can appropriately plug and play a dog 
um, to give you the highest rate of one deterrence, but also the highest rate of if things go kinetic or, or a line gets crossed, how you use that tool that way you go back home, right? Or you get to figure out everything tomorrow, right? So um, we do a lot of education and that's primarily what it is, how to handle, how the dog was taught this way so that that owner can, can really understand to an extent of like why the dog does that way, why the dog lines up this way, why the dog does this or that. So it's not just like, hey, here's the leash, let's go walking. Tell your dog to sit. It's like, well, how is the dog taught to sit? How, how is it used? Like how we also teach mark, markers, uh, timing, you know, dog psychology and, and how they're associating cause and effect. So to answer your question, for that week, we are putting on a full, like, kind of all-inclusive um, training camp for that family, for that owner. It's definitely not, hey, here's a dog that does protection. Good luck. Thank you for doing business with us. Mm -hmm. And are these dogs um, classified as service dogs? Great question. So to be frank, it is a gray area in which we operate in. Okay. okay and what I, what I mean by that is in regards to service dogs, and we get this question a lot, according to the ADA standard, the American Disability Act, according to the U.S. Department of Justice stipulation, a guard or attack dog does not classify as a service dog, okay? And the reason for that, protection is not a service that qualifies as a service dog. And I will expound upon that in a second. So if somebody... Let's just say somebody needed mobility, somebody needed um, to be able to pick and retrieve objects because their knees or their back's not so great, or maybe they, um, a multitude of different things. Well, naturally, if the dog is just a guard dog and you're using that as a service, well, then what happens when people approach and they, want, they need to help this person? Then the dog becomes a liability. So the, the Department of Justice says, and a guard dog or an attack dog cannot be a service. That cannot be the service that's provided. Because how do we help the person? The gray area is that protection sport training can be a secondary education for a service dog. So let me explain. All right. And... Some people might misunderstand this, and I don't want to misrepresent this in any fashion. Um, when we have clients, we try to figure out, is there, is there a way that this dog can be taught a task specific to the client that we can train a service dog-related task that directly helps the owner? Okay. That can be a multitude of things, and that, and that typically is just private conversations between naturally the owner and the dog trainer. We go, you know what, this, this is a service task that I can train this dog to complete for your um, medical or foreseen um, 
condition or, or things that will aid you in the future that you can see a forecast, right? Things like mobility, like I was saying, if you fall, you might not be the best at like getting up. You may need assistance. Like that's where you see dogs have braces and handles and stuff like that. Um, maybe you have like titanium plates in your knee and you're not the, you know, it's, you're not a spring chicken anymore. Um, or maybe um, motor function, right? Or maybe you have a bad back and you're like, you know, if my dog can pick up my cell phone and hand it to me or whatever it is, I can ask this dog to do. Well, that's a service dog task. Okay. Now a service dog must un must know uh, and be able to perform a service dog task for the owner to be a service dog. Now that service dog first can secondarily have other abilities in protection dog sports. Like a service dog, I'll give an example, in a very, uh, people can wrap their head around, you can have a Aussie or something that is not even like a guardy type dog be trained to do a task, right? And be a, a, a full-blown service dog that assists its owner. You can go and take it and you can teach an Australian Shepherd IPO right? Like you can go and teach it obedience routine in a, uh, that Australian shepherd can go and get a, um, you know, a, a certain part of, um, right. An IPO obedience routine or wh whatever type of like dog training sport. Mm -hmm. So this service dog has secondary training protection, yeah. but yeah, the yeah. primary function of this dog is service related. Got it. So by playing within that gray area, we have a service dog that can perform protection. Does that make sense? But the protection is not the primary function of the service dog. Like this, the, the protection is not the service. So by doing that and until it's just like taxes, like, Hey, if this, if this is how the tax game works, Right. And I can get a tax credit by buying a vehicle this big and I get to depreciate the whole thing and I get to write it off as a business. Guess what I'm doing? I'm going to go purchase a vehicle underneath my business. Or if I can tax write off my meals and my dinners and taking someone out and we talk about business and and I get to right? Like that's the tax code. I'm going to play within the tax code. If the federal regulation says that a service dog needs to be trained in a task specific to the owner to help and aid in that person's um, medical condition or whatever it is, right? Uh, and that dog can also uh, be trained in other things, I'm gonna play in that gray area. Because what's the purpose of a protection dog that is quasi limited to your household? Like, yeah, you can do that, but so there's a lot of applications for a family protection dog that is very beneficial if that dog can go anywhere you go, which is the privilege of a service dog. Okay, Maya's dog, service dog until it performs a live bite, right? Uh, no, because, and, and the answer is no, right? Um, like, and people get twisted on like, what's a live bite, right? Like 
how many chihuahuas got live bites? <laughs> right? Like what, because when you're talking about dogs, you're not talking about, you're talking about a less than lethal application. You're not talking about a firearm. You're talking about a, a dog bite. But then the articulation, right, is going, well, there's also gray area. Did you tell that dog to go do A and B? Or did that dog upon animal instincts feel that it was in, in danger and reacted to that situation on its own? Right? So, so there's a lot of, there's gray area. And as long as that we, we can establish that we have a dog that is social, we have a dog that is under control. We have a dog that is neutral to stimulus, neutral to, um, neutral to like all your everyday stuff. Right. And is not a liability. I've had clients that had real protection engagements, no issues. Thank you for that. Right. What are some of the major differences you look for when screening personal protection dogs versus LE canine? Great. And what great. is LE canine? Law enforcement. Got it. So a law, a law enforcement canine. Um, so major difference uh, a lot of times is um, sociability, right? That That's a number one disqualifier. Because if you have a defensive dog, no way it can be applicable. Um, if you have a dog that is too high in prey, like, like neurotically high in prey, well, then naturally, like, it's going to be very difficult to create that dog to be neutral around everyday things that can be observed as prey. For instance, uh, a person riding a bicycle, right, zooming past you, moving, prey, right, could be misinterpreted as prey. Well, if the dog is just comes unglued and, and because it's moving, well, how many things move in your everyday life? So the difference a lot of times, and I'm not saying that law enforcement dogs don't have to have obedience and they don't have to be neutral and they don't have to be. Um, but am I concerned really about, um, am I concerned really about whether my dog uh, is neutral to a jogger, maybe if I'm a, in a law enforcement capacity? Probably not because I'm taking this dog out and I'm going to go, um, if it's an apprehension dog, like I'm going to apprehend someone. Mm -hmm. My concern is not whether my dog's going to get spun up because Johnny kicked his soccer ball. Right? So level-headedness um, and clarity inside the dog's mind is probably the number one attribute that I look for that separates the two, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Okay, between a Malinois, a Dutchie, or a German Shepherd, what do you prefer for personal protection dog with a family? Very generic question. I know you asked like three different breeds, but it's very generic, right? Because um, are we talking about, right, a family of five kids? Or are we talking about a dynamic where parents aren't going to be main handlers because they're occupied by business? Right. So the breed 
the breed is not necessarily a preference. A better question would be, what would I prefer, right? Like as a, as just a trainer or myself, but to, to say for a family, we have families that have every, all three of those breeds, shepherds, duchies, Malinois. So it's kind of a two of a generic question to go, ah, a German shepherd is better for a family or a Dutch shepherd is better for a family. What do you specifically prefer? Me personally, and it's just a personal preference, I like block-headed, stout Dutch Shepherds. Like, that's just my preference, right? Um, it's not necessarily a breed thing, but I, I do know that most most of the time, your, your higher-drive dog that is going to be, um, I think, more apt and a higher trainability uh, faster to pick up stuff is going to be your Malinois Dutch Shepherd. Well, Malinois typically don't have a stockier presence, except for like cash that, that we're here with our client. They, they normally don't have a stockier presence because you typically get the leaner, right? Like French or like Belgian line dogs that are more sleeker, kind of more mousy, right? Mm. Well, Dutch Shepherds, um, historically they have an infusion of most likely other breeds or other bully breeds. So that's where the, like the brindle can come in, right? If you, the tiger stripe brindle comes in, well, those dogs have a genetic disposition to be stockier, thicker boned. So um, not to say that Malinois can't be that big. Uh, so I like the presence, right? Of that, just a little bit wider stance, but with a bit wider head but I still like the intellect, right, of the Mali side. Um, they typically have shorter, finer fur. And then German Shepherds, while typically they have less edge, um, they can also be a longer road to, like, train, a little bit slower to develop, right? And also maybe a little less... Um, maybe a little less uh, in the fuel tank when it comes to training, living, right? They're going to tire up easier. And so my preference kind of is the, if I can have a really intelligent dog that also is presence is a big stamp, right? That's just, that's my preference. Um, so that's a good question though. Thank you for that. Okay. Can we talk about insurance and how, yeah. um, what insurance is best for someone with a person? Great. Is it is that kind of like uh, this question? Does PPD affect insurance? Mm -hmm. uh, the handler must carry. Okay. Good question. So, um, in regards to insurance for the owner or the family, um, so playing within the gray area uh, is also insurance. Okay. Now, there's two insurance, right? You got the insurance on the liability side and then you have the insurance on the dog side um usually what's sufficient is most insurances go off of breed right like big dog little dog right like kind of they're they calculate in there what type of breed and, and stuff like that that's why you see a lot of places that um you can't live if you have a bully breed or, or you can't, you know, if a pit bull, like you can't live in this complex or this HOA or whatever. And that's just an example. So um, usually a 
if you're just talking to the insurance company and you just are going based off of this is the breed of the dog and it's a service dog, most of the time a solid liability coverage is all you need. And the reason is because the application first is going to be service dog. Now, if you went like, hey, this dog is a protection dog, that's a different conversation because automatically there's going to be insurances that, that are going to be like, well, I don't know what that means. Because an insurance in a, in a, in a, um, a underwriter, right, or an insurance policy, they're just going protection means teeth, means human, which means possible lawsuit, which means liability. We're either going to jack this up or we're just going to not want it because it's very unclear to an insurance company. What does protection mean? They're thinking hospital bills. What they're not thinking is this dog is professionally trained. This dog is neutral. This dog is obedience. This dog is used as a, um, as a resort to protect the property that the insurance company is probably already covering in insurance, right? Um, in that, uh, they're not thinking in that capacity of control. They're thinking the other capacity of liability. So it gets tricky. Um, now, if you have a service dog that happens to defend you, right, on your own property or in your own car, usually because of articulation and reports and understanding of how this is working, then when you go to tell your insurance company, like, hey, I was robbed, I was trespassed, they broke into my door, right? And my dog saved my life. It's a lot easier for that insurance to go, no problem, we'll cover the window, the door, your car or whatever, and that's awesome that your dog was courageous and helped you in a time of need. It's a lot easier for them to go that that chance that you need your insurance company and they're like, yes, we'll, we'll cover and write the check. If you're approaching it in that light versus, hey, insurance company, um, I bought a guard dog and I would like to get coverage. You see like the difference? Mm -hmm. So, so there's, there is some finesse of gray area of how, if you want coverage, you'll get coverage, but you also have to understand how they're, they're analyzing um, and how they're pricing in and what they're willing to cover depending on your delivery. So that's very, that's very important. Very, very important. Um, so if you're like, hey, I got a German Shepherd, it's my service dog, then they're going to go, oh, big dog policy. But if you go, yeah, I got a guard dog, they're thinking like, this thing's chained up front. What if little Sally like makes a mistake and like enters the wrong gate and she gets right nuke? They're thinking like that. So you have to understand how they think so that you don't feed their, what they're thinking is um, kind of like Ignorance. So there are a lot of times they're writing policy out of naivety, not that they know this dog is off leash, right? Obedient. This dog is uh, trained to the highest caliber. This dog is, is they're not thinking all of that. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking, yes, let's just say you're in a protection dog sport. Oh, 
my dog is a PSA. My dog is a protection dog. They, they're not thinking, well, that requires an obedience score. That, that requires um, hours and hours of training of control and neutrality. So when it comes to insurance, you have to know how do you present the plate and you're normally typically able to get insurance under liability coverage. Now, what that looks like, that's up to you. Keyword, finesse. Yes. So thank you for that. Eric, can you talk to me about your experience before starting Coastline? Yeah, of course. Information? Of course. No, that, that's, I appreciate that, uh, that question there. Um, so uh, I actually just posted that we, this week, a few days ago, we hit our like five year anniversary of being, you know, an established company. Um, okay. The experience of myself, our staff is a little bit unique in the sense of um, our backgrounds. Now our backgrounds aren't everything. They just give us a good foundation. Um, so my personal background, uh, when I was in the military, uh, I was in a special operations unit. Uh, some people know as the Army Rangers. Um, I was a normal member of a team there. And after a few tours, uh, a few combat tours between Iraq and Afghanistan, I wanted to do something different. So I actually wanted to uh, go and be a sniper. So there was like a slot open to go and be a sniper because I was like, man, that's a cool spot to have, right? Um, but someone ha had more tenure than me ended up getting the slot. So uh, I did not get the sniper spot, which is good because I don't think I'm the best with calculating math. <laughs> so that worked out in my favor. Um, but because I had been around a little bit, they, I was asked specifically if I wanted to try out for the canine section of the unit. And so the primary function of the canines in that unit is uh, looking for IEDs, right? Uh, uh, bombs, tripwires, right? Because it's a combat environment. And then also apprehension, uh, looking for bad guys that may be hidden or trying to ambush or surprise us or something like that. Um, so I decided to go that route. I went to uh, Vaughn Lake Kennels for uh, basically a special forces handler course. Uh, once we graduated that, we came back to our home unit and we did the advanced uh, canine handler course, which requires fast roping and sliding down ropes from helicopters and um, clearing buildings and rooms and tactical and shooting with your dog and doing all these different movements. Um, and then I did two combat deployments as a canine handler and they were very successful. No one got hurt or anything like that, even in the, you know, the height of the war and, and some of the most austere environments. Uh, so that was good. Uh, we accomplished a lot of, you know, capturing of high value targets and stuff like that. So I felt, man, this is, this is, uh, this is definitely unique. This is a niche, right? Um, so once I exited the military as a canine handler, I didn't know what to do. I, I was like, oh, well, let me, let me try dogs. Let me try it in the civilian world. So I called around uh, in Virginia Beach, a few different places to just volunteer just pick up poop, walk dogs, and I found a place, right? And that company was called Cobra Canine. Um, and I think from that, from that time of transition, uh, you know, I, I helped, I volunteered for a little bit, and then 
by the grace of God, uh, I got accepted in a, you know, a very prestigious spot and being a invited to be a uh, dog trainer for the Navy SEAL program that uh, that company had under contract. And so for about a year or so, uh, a little bit more than that, then I was helping Navy SEAL teams um, and their dogs, putting them through handler courses, preparing the dogs, uh, making sure that these uh, Navy SEAL teams and the canines, you know, are, are ready to deploy, ready to go on missions and, and to be able to do that. Um, after I left there, uh, I was able to go on a, you know, a short contract for about a month or so, uh, down to South America, right. Done by the same, same company. And so it was actually a really neat experience. Uh, I went down there with a Guatemalan Terp, uh, canine Terp. And during the 2014 world cup, um, at that time frame, I was in South America and we put almost 30 dogs through become detection trained and certified in a month. And they, these were brand new dogs from Europe. And so from zero to hero, ready to be certified for police about a month. And then also do a trainer course for handlers to become dog trainers. And so once I accomplished that, I, I felt like I had a lot of confidence of going to a foreign country. I don't speak Spanish, right. Um, and being able to teach, uh, you know, 30 some police officers, how do train detection dogs and handle handle dogs and then train those dogs basically just communicating through a terp then i felt like wow well, this is I, maybe technically does this count as being an international dog trainer <laughs> right and and so um after that uh kind of went on my way shooting instructor for a little bit and then that's when i actually uh just started walking dogs like i like Coastline Canine was created because I became a dog walker first. So, which is kind of funny, right? Like, um, but I knew that I couldn't just jump in and, and go, oh, I train dogs when nobody knew me outside of the military capacity, right? Uh, Susie down the street didn't know who I am, who I existed, right? So I started walking dogs and once I built enough Rolodex of just walking dogs for like $5 an hour. Like I, I would walk dogs. Um, then I started training those dogs and I started improving them. Like when I returned them back to their owner and stuff like that. And they're like, wow, like, like Fido is completely different. Like this dog can walk on a leash. Like this dog is doing stuff. And then those clientele started turning into training clientele. Training clientele started into a bigger Rolodex, bigger Rolodex, turn into well can you help me raise this puppy into a protection dog and that rolled into providing protection dogs so um during that whole time um you know my wife was there helping me go through that because we were just kind of hip pocketing off the cuff and then in 2016 then i had done it for about a year training dogs and you know just by myself out of my garage essentially um then we established the company and all the way up until uh, two years ago, it was just me and my wife, no employees. And then now I think we're at maybe 10 trainers, two locations and kind of, we do the whole gambit. That's awesome. Congratulations. Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Thanks. Great. Love to hear the entrepreneur.
Yeah, yeah there's there's some That's questions. Yeah. Um, so we got a few questions um, that people submitted yesterday. How do you condition okay. a dog to go after any body part without a bite suit during a home intrusion? Great question. Okay, so when it comes to bite work, um, this can be kind of trickery, tricky slope because dogs, each dog is a completely di different variable, right? And all their drives are, are completely different. But in a nutshell, um, we teach the dog first, biting is a game, right? And you see it in Instagram and you see all this training and it's primarily shin, forearm first, right? And you go through all these different sleeves. Well, once you're able to get to a bite suit and the dog has grips, the dog has placement, the dog has confidence, once you get to a bite suit, now you're not stuck just using forearms or leg sleeves, right? Now you can start teaching the dog that um, what, what is presented is what you got to work with. So once the dog can now be confident in different places on the body, um, we don't teach the dog to be hectic, right? And, that, and that's, I, I want to clarify, we don't teach a dog like, hey, like you see a pistol in a hand, like go for a hand. Like you see a knife in a hand, go for there. It, we don't have a, I don't really believe in a whole bunch of a dog that just bites something, leaves and goes to get something else because it's moving. And that's a whole different topic in regards to, you know, some training technique and real world application but once the dog can get to a level where the dog is confident the dog is secure the dog understands grips um, bite placement and how to confidently defeat someone in a bite suit then we start going backwards and we not backwards but we start stripping the decoy down so the decoy goes from a bite suit and then the decoy starts going down to uh, thinner sleeves. Once the dog goes from like bigger sleeves to thinner sleeves and you start doing the opposite, you start shedding equipment. Then you start teaching the dog that no equipment, um, the dog can still accomplish and get rid of conflict. And once the dog is confident and not focused on equipment, then you can start hiding equipment, right? Really thin sleeves. Uh, you start hiding um, fire hose, right? Like we use fire hose that it just, it just looks like I have a long sleeve on, but I'm protected through fire hose underneath there. And so we start teaching the dog. Once the dog understands fundamentals of grip and strength, now we can start presenting bodies that are hidden that doesn't look like a bite suit. And the dog can still have the same confidence through conditioning that I can bite them here. I can bite them what's presented as long as that's what we're showing them because it's, it's, semi-dangerous for us, right? Or it's kind of risky. Um, but only once the dog understands um, how, how to do everything on the bite suit, then we start removing. And so the dog can understand um, it's not the bite suit, it's the person. Mm -hmm. Once it's a person, then we start teaching the dog it's not material, right? And then we start shutting down. So that's when you'll see us uh, in different trainers. You know, you get to a point where you're using fake arms and stuff like that. So now they're going from jute, bite suit, cloth, 
puffiness, right? You're no more Michelin man. You got this synthetic rubber arm. Um, and then once they understand that, then pretty much uh, the dog is confident in the entire um, the entire escalator of fun game all the way to no material and it's uh, a lot of conflict, right? The dog is doing conflict resolution and figuring out how how we can defeat the person that doesn't have this big prey driven Michelin man suit on. So to answer your question, it's a roller coaster of teaching the dog be confident with all the material. And once the dog is confident with all the material, we start removing the material and teaching the dog to be confident without material. And so now, now the dog just looks as kind of um, what I'm able to get. I know how to effectively make or hopefully uh, make the threat or the person go away, right? In a nutshell, I, I can go deep in all these questions, but I just want to keep it like. Copy that, got it. Yeah. Do you believe from Plum's Mayhem, do you believe you can make a puppy too prey driven? Yes, you can make a puppy like neurotic, right? And, and unfortunately you see people that um, will cause a puppy, it, and this goes for two sides of coin, too prey, too much prey, and or too defensive, right? So too much prey is if if your whole, if you, the only time you bring this dog out and you are just focusing on it only gets wins after going about moving things, now this dog is just thinking when it, whatever moves, satisfaction for preventing this thing from moving. So you can do it. You can make it too prey and you can make it too defensive. On the flip side of the coin, you see people agitating puppies while they're in kennels and they're biting on gates and stuff like that. Like there's a point where you, you want the dog to go, yeah, I'm not afraid of you. But there's also a point where the dog as a puppy could go too far into the trenches and just like whenever a person approaches me, I'm going to start showing teeth and I'm going to start doing hackles up and you don't want to reward that behavior either. So you have to find a, a balance of, um, you have to create a system that that's a balance and you don't go, you don't go too far. Right. Cause then the dog, the dog cannot rationalize or contact like put into context. So um, you don't want a dog that is now just anything that moves. It wants to nuke it because it thinks that it's, it's, it's accomplishing and releasing endorphins and dopamines because when something moves and I stop it, I get a high. Right. Um, so you have to do it within within reason, right? Like, what are you trying to accomplish? If the purpose is prey so that you can teach a ball, once the, once the dog has a clear understanding of like how the ball works, you don't make, you don't need to like super escalate that because without context, then Johnny who's kicking a soccer ball and that dog puts on blinders and like it's too neurotic where it just barks too much or it thinks it needs to stop whatever's moving it's going to be harder to train that dog later when you need to turn the volume down. Mm-hmm. How old are the dogs that you um, provide your clients? Good question. So the dogs that we typically provide um, are going to be after mental and sexual maturity. Okay. okay. And so typically when you're talking about a shepherd, usually 
after the two-year mark. Um, when you're talking about Malinois or Dutchies, you know, the earliest, right, is a year and a half. But most of our dogs, they are, they've seen the gamut. They've gone through a lot of repetition. They've gone through a lot of scenarios. They've gone through a lot of grocery shopping, right? So, so they're um, typically between two and a half and four years old, roughly. Like that, if you put an average, because now you know, like the full character of that dog. That dog has also spent months, right, and years of exposing something that is not ideal also, right? So, so when these breeds live to be 11 or 14, you know, years old, which is the breed standard for a Malinois or that Shepherd, if you get a dog that's two and a half years old, three years old, even four years old, like, you, you got that dog to be very applicable for like a good chunk of time. Mm -hmm. And so people make the mistake of like, oh, I want a protection dog. Like, let me pick out a puppy. You guys train it. Well, anybody in the, in the Malinois or working dog world knows like, it's just a crapshoot and a gamble. That, may, that dog may look awesome for a few months and that dog will never make, a, never make the high school football team. Right. Like, and, and so what ends up happening is you spend so much time, you get attached to this dog and then you end up settling for a dog that has no ability other than being a uh, dog that has energy. Right. So if, if your goal and um, if your goal is to effectively own a protection dog for the point of I want peace of mind. I feel better. I want to be self-reliable. And I also want an awesome dog to have for myself or my family generally, then it's better to go. I want this dog for a reason. So I'm going to purchase the dog that fits my lifestyle starting now. And the analogy that I use to my clients is um, when you want to go buy a vehicle, right? You go and you're like, Hey, I need a, Let's just say, uh, I don't know, what type of vehicle do you want? Here's a good, I'll ask you a question. What, what type of vehicle would be like an awesome vehicle for you to have in here or that you want? A Ferrari. Ferrari. Why? Why? Because they're dope. <laughs> <laughs> dope, right? Okay. You probably don't have, I don't know, but you don't have a, a family of 18, right? It's probably <laughs> just you and you're like, you and my dog, two seats, that's what I want. Like, okay. When you're going to buy your Ferrari, do you first start out and go, you know what? I want to build my tires, right? Like maybe I should start with a rubber tree. No, you don't go, I want a Ferrari. Well, let me start building my own Ferrari. Not really, right? Because no. now you're like, well, where, what mountain do I get this aluminum from? So if you want a Ferrari, <laughs> if you want a Ferrari, you go up, you go, you know what? I want a Ferrari. It's this one. Let's say it's this color. You go, you figure out the logistics, the finances, and you drive away with the car that you wanted. Yeah. You don't go through this whole process of like trying to build your first Ferrari. Right. So, so, so an example, why I use that is in the same way, if you want a protection dog, and your ecosystem looks like I live this, this is how I live, this is my occupation, this is my job, 
I have this many kids. I have no kids. This is my lifestyle. Select the dog from the get-go that you know it has the ability and protection, obedience, and fits all of those characteristics from the jump. Plug and play it into your lifestyle instead of rolling the dice and trying to build your own Ferrari. If you want a protection dog, accomplish a protection dog. Purchase one. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. Thank you for that. Okay, what's the ideal age to start protection training? Is any specific training recommended prior? Okay, good question. Um, so if you are going to build your car, right? Um, usually when you're dealing with protection dogs, like they're starting from the breeder, right? They, these dogs are desensitized to noises, right? All your fireworks, your lights, your sirens, they're starting to be um, imprinting with gunfire, like before they can open their eyes, right? Just doing audible, audio uh, desensitization, right? Um, so desensitizing to all these different things, desensitizing to environmentals, right? So stuff as a puppy, um, there is a lot, a lot, a lot of foundational groundwork that must be started as soon as possible because if you don't use it, you lose it, okay? So um, in the ideal world, the perfect time for training is probably at the breeding selection, right? Like, like that's where you just start. You, you start from um, the pregnancy, right? In, in essence. And then when the puppies come out, right? Nutrition, puppies come out. Once they come out, you're, you're starting to, to desensitize them and introduce them to things, right? Like I've seen, I've seen um, other trainers go as far as introducing a clicker before the dog's eyes can open, which is awesome. It makes a complete sense, right? When mom is feeding, they know that they need to go over to mom to go feed milk before they let mom back into the place for the, all the puppies to, to receive nutrients. They mark it, they click it, and then they allow mom in to go feed the puppies. So the puppies are already thinking like clicker equals sustenance. Clicker means I'm about to get fed. And that starts, the, the puppies have never even left the whooping box yet, let alone introducing them when they're eight, 10 weeks old, right? And you're trying to do some like sit and click and introduce a mark. So when it comes to protection dogs, the best... The best training starts with their parents. <laughs> Makes sense. Okay. Um, how long does it take to build a protection dog with bite nights once a week protection classes? Hmm. Um, kind of a loaded question again, right? A lot of a lot of protection dog is very niche because there's a lot of variables. So if you're just doing like bite night. Once a week, a lot of clubs do it or a lot of groups or a lot of trainers offer something um, in that capacity. Um, the road's going to be long, right? So you got to start as soon as possible. It also behooves you to start as soon as possible because you also need to keep an eye out and see, like, is it at, I want to know sooner rather than later if this dog does not have the interest or drive to be able to do this capability. However, if you're doing, 
some echo. If you're doing bite night once a week, that's like trying to learn another language, but you're one class a week for one hour. It's not as efficient if you did any type of reps, go to the gym, learn a language, right? More than once a week. So the longest road you could take is uh, just doing once a week. Now, on average, you'll see um, these dogs are, you know, two, three years old. And that's if the handler and the trainer combo in which you're going to do this bite work, that's if they are uh, professional and know how to build a dog. So you kind of have to remove is what the mentality, if there is one, and I'm not saying there is, is once a week sufficient? You have to start asking a question. Is that the right question? Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Can you um, walk me through what the idea, the schedule is for um, the dogs that you have provide or, you know, would be a health, considered a healthy dog? Like, uh, do you mean like a daily or what do you mean? Yeah, like how much activity, how much um, exercise, like crate time, um, yeah. nutrition. Okay. Um, when it comes to protection dogs, ideally, um, ideally their their day they're coming out for training multiple times a day, but it's not always bite work, right? Um, most of the time, they're working for their food. So a lot of times it's easier for obedience routines, right? And teaching, uh, free shaping, different types of concepts uh, for them to, to have mental stimulation. So they have to be thinking, they have to problem solve. If they problem solve, they receive sustenance. That same dog, if you bring them out and you're like, hey, I'm trying to feed you. And that dog, right, gives you the deuces and we're like, well, I'm not really ready. Well, that dog may not come out until lunchtime until it decides that, you know what, that was probably not the most efficient move on my part. And the dog's like, maybe next time I'll want to eat from the first time it's offered to me. But, but what you do is you start cultivating a brain that goes, this is my opportunity to work. So once you do that, then a lot of times, um, most dogs are typically up when the sun comes up, right? It's like animals. That's why roosters crow. So as much as you can, um, feeding, obedience, potty, all that normal routine. If your schedule allows, uh, it's usually good to get another obedience routine somewhere in the day, right? If your schedule allows, I like to typically do uh, bite work in the evening. Um, and there's kind of, uh, my way of thinking is if I'm just training the dog, naturally it's typically when I want the dog to learn a semi chaotic concept, which is bite work, right? Cause there's a lot going on. It's there's mental and physical, um, compartmentalization and the dog understanding grips uh, bite pressure, whatever you're trying to mark, right? Um, proximity, whatever it is, there's a lot more, I think, for the dog to, to 
try to conceptualize. And then what I like to do is once that dog does the bite work, that dog goes away to the kennel, calms down, comes out, does some engagement, feeding, neutrality, and then typically like that dog's going back to sleep. Mm-hmm. Unless I'm focusing on very something specific and I know today I'm trying to bring out this dog, it's probably gonna take two or three reps to do, let's say something specific in bite work. Um, so when it comes to training, you wanna train as much as your dog will allow you to, or as much as the dog tells you, I want to train. What I don't do is if the dog is not feeling it, I don't train, but I also don't give them welfare. And what I mean by that is like, if the dog comes out and like, yeah, I'm not interested in training, I may withhold whatever meal that is. But what I'm not gonna do is go, I'm not gonna introduce the variable of the dog going, you know what, I'm not feeling it. And then me try to introduce something new and the dog decided that it can tell me I'm not feeling it. And there's, there's, I can, I can create that file that the dog's like, you know what? I told you I'm not ready to work, so I'm not going to work. You can't make me. So I won't, I won't introduce things that give me the window for the dog to, right? Give me the peace sign and say, yeah, we're not doing that. So I go, the dog's not ready to work. It comes out. It's just kind of not interested, right? Like it happens all the time with dog trainers and you're like, yeah, the, my dog is not there to right now. <laughs> like is not, not the, the engagement's not there. The dog is not really any interest. The dog decides to like rather go chase butterflies instead of when I pop out this Kong ball, flirt pole, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, then I go, okay, no problem. Back to the bench. Right. So you have to understand uh, what a dog that is telling you it wants to train looks like and what a dog that just looks like it's happy to be out looks like. Um, and training, you have to differentiate the two. Now, when the dog... Okay, I think we lost, okay. We lost Eric. Let's see. No. Byron, you want to hop in? The whole case coastline crew can hop in if you want. <laughs> hey. Hey. <laughs> How's it going, Byron? All right. Here we are. Here we go. <laughs> We're live. Yeah, I don't know. Did your phone die? No, no. It's just it's, it's doing the little spinny, thing man. on your face. Well, here we go. Back to um, <laughs> no, where, where we just were. I got, te- I got team members. Yeah, right. 
I wasn't ready. I don't have my hair done. I don't have my makeup. <laughs> Are you kidding me? All right, sorry guys. Uh, I'll let you continue. <laughs> Thank you for assisting. Okay. <laughs> don't forget my speaker on the bottom that echoes. Oh, no problem. Okay, what are, what questions we got? So, um, the last the last one we were talking about um, when you're training a dog, and if the dog isn't being compliant, essentially don't stop oh, training. Right, right. Um, I don't want to give an opportunity to basically my dog give me the middle finger, and then the dog learns, ha, ah, that worked. So if the dog does that, then I still have control because that 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 giving me the middle finger also they're going to wait to eat and that just keeps the dog going hey when it's time to perform i i'm ready to perform and and, and once you do that when the dog is then you got a dog that when you pull it it knows there's no there's no bs there's no games like let's do this mm -hmm. a dog that's ready to train is a uh dog that typically will learn faster as long as everything else is in play right a lazy dog is a lazy dog so but we will train when they're when they've proven to be willing to train we will counter it and we'll go hey not every time we come out here like you lose your marbles sometimes we're just being neutral and we're just watching tv so you create stability not every time we come out like right out the gate as a cannon sometimes if i'm telling you to chill we chill makes but sense because, because i'm setting what the objective is, not because the dog decides to like, think it's okay to blow me off, if that makes sense. So the dog is, and we create very stable dogs that way. Mm -hmm. It makes total sense. What do you think is the most important thing that people should know if they're thinking about getting a protection dog? Um, okay, so there's different points to this question, I think. If someone is thinking about getting a protection dog, first of all, there's a commitment, right? And that goes with anything, any type of relationship. Second of all, um, financially, right? It's it's not cheap, right, to speak. Um, and what you have to understand is why trainers and why companies price dogs um, the way they do. I think once people do that they can they can respect why the dog costs that much because you think how how many how many uh man hours have you put into your dog a lot okay now what what do you like what would you value let's just say Price at an hour rate your time per hour I mean, it would be okay. priceless, yeah. It's hard, right? Now you take, well, what about keeping this dog safe, keeping this dog healthy, right? What about um, exposing this dog? Like, okay, now multiply that, not by hour, by days. And then this occurs for two years, okay? So the interesting part is, though, if you break down a price, I think the... And, and I want to clarify why I'm saying this. The average price, I think, in America is a trained protection dog roughly in between like um, 35 
in 60K, right? $1,000, right? And this is important if you're interested in a protection dog. And the reason why is it has to be um, almost like a mentality shift because mm -hmm. people are so, so interested or they are so motivated to, let's just say, any other purchase that way, like, let me, I want to go buy a car. Just Honda Odyssey, right? $40,000 minivan, whatever it is, right? So, but you're purchasing, right, a car. When people need something, they figure out a way to achieve it, right? That goes with anything. Now, take, take an animal that lasts hopefully more than a decade. Now you take that cost and divide it by a decade. Your average cost per day, I think is like $2. That, that essentially means that for your dog to be able to do that for 10 days, you would, it'd be the equivalent of hiring a dog trainer for $2, not an hour, a day. Right? So, but that dog is providing you uh, security, companionship, right? There, there's all the other stuff that that dog could also, because of its training and ability, um, without knowing it, that dog could prolong your own life or your own loved one's life or whatever it is. So when you look at a dog, and if, if you're looking at a protection dog, um, you're going to get what you invest in. Um, and it's not it's not all about does my dog bite. The second part of that, outside of the financial investment that people have to come to terms with to be palatable, is that when it comes to um, a protection dog and you're interested in it, um, protection dogs are not specifically just for people who have a foreseeable uh, problem or point of conflict. Okay. And what I mean by that is I get this sometimes with people that are like interested, they're like, Oh man, a protection dog would be awesome. But I live in this amazing gated community and I pay a HOA for, for security guard up front or whatever, or I don't think people are too much interested into me because people have a misconception that like, people are only interested in you if you have a net worth. That's not the case at all, right? People that have ulterior motives primarily function off of what's at what ad, advantage in the moment, right? They're, they're, uh, so um, just because you're not a target, you don't have someone who has a restraining order or you don't, you don't cause problems. Um, that's not the only reason an application for a protection dog. Like that's not the only validation. Um, we have clients from all walks of life. They invest in a protection dog because they know what, like by adding this air, I make myself a harder target for the next decade. If I'm a harder target, I'm least likely to face conflict. If I'm least likely to face conflict because I'm a harder target, how much more quality of life can I put potentially attain through this investment right so 
everybody to an extent consider security. If you didn't, you wouldn't have a front door, right? Like you would not have a lock on your car, right? You, you would not, right? So people have the idea, but sometimes people get it twisted and they think, oh, I'm only, I'm only interested because I'm a hard target or, or I'm a, I'm a, I have an active target on my back. So um, having a protection dog, one of the things that it is impossible for us to quantify, not only as a company, as trainers, but as use cases, the amount of times is by merely having this trained dog with these abilities, how many times did somebody, right, friend, foe, opposite sex or not, whatever it is, how many times did the mere existence of this dog that clearly states this dog is functional, how many times did that change the decision making from the person who was watching you throughout? And that doesn't mean like somebody is just like stalking you. That means somebody who is potentially has an ulterior motive or is feeling like um, they are uh, potentially looking at you as a target of opportunity, how many times in someone's life was that person decided to go, yeah, that's not the person I'm going to like keep watching. That's not the person that I'm going to see what kind of watch they're wearing. That's not the person that I'm um, interested in seeing what kind of car they drive. That's not the person that I'm, I'm going to watch for a little while, right? That's not the person that I want to see where they live necessarily so how many times is the existence of that investment allowed someone that you it is impossible to count count right the amount of times that person goes you know what i am that one is probably not uh not efficient to right uh mark as a target for potential it doesn't have to be today it could be right going forward so you can't quantify numbers. Um, however, that is a very real and active thing, is that by the interest in owning a protection dog, you could potentially be, be investing in uh, longevity of a more peaceful life. Right? And, and it's not a fear-mongering or anything, but it's like, it's like how many times do you just people watch somebody at Walmart? Like, hey, you know, but people do that and they go in a spring of a moment, you know what? I'm feeling froggy today. It doesn't have to be because you have a target painted on you or because you, you're a high risk or because you're a, you know, um, a certain net worth or a certain position. People with ulterior motives are primarily, they target based off of opportunity. So, if I give them the opportunity when they do look at me and they're like, wow, that dog is impressive. I would much rather potentially inquire about someone who doesn't have a dog, right? So then they just going through a parking lot or whatever, you're grabbing your coffee and like the decision was made that day that they weren't going to pay attention to you or they weren't going to follow you or they weren't going to harass you or they weren't coming to do whatever. And so to sum up that question, the investment is an investment in quality of life, 
not a price tag. And so once you wrap your head around what you're actually getting, most people don't keep their cars for more than five years, but they have no problem trying to figure out financing, trying to figure out like what they need to do to, to accomplish that car that they want. But a lot of times when you do a protection dog, they go, wow, four legs and a tail, that's expensive. But it's because their mentality in shopping or inquiring about a protection dog is not mature yet. So that's why I say those two things. One, there's a reason why that investment, you're investing in yourself and you're also investing in creating yourself to be a harder target in life in general. If not, unbolt your front door, take it off the hinges, right? And live like that, right? But that's not the case. So um, that answers your question to a, to a degree, right? Like, I think that when it comes, those are the most common two things. If somebody is interested in a protection dog, that off the rip, that they should have a, a, a mental understanding most likely you're probably like asking me well, about the dog, the activity level, the commitment of training. But I don't think that's the case because most likely if you can wrap your head around those two things, why the investment is the investment and what you're actually investing in and why that brings quality of life. then when a person wraps their head around that, they're in it to win it when it comes to, I know I got to take care of my dog. I know I got to feed the dog. I know that this dog is going to require engagement. So everything else kind of like dominoes is taken care of. But if the first two, the understanding is not clear and the maturity is not there when they're going and they're interested in a protection dog, then what are we talking about yet? Right? You're probably not going to be able to handle a Dutch Shepherd or Malinois, right? If you're just going price, cool, right? So I think that those two things, once, once you can mentally wrap your head around that and you're like i understand that everything else when it comes to hey you need to train this way you need to feed this way you need to be prepared for this like you need to move and shake your life just to tailor it now that you have a protection dog that's all like flat water it's easy to digest excellent thank you so much for articulating that it's thank you appreciate that and thank you for providing protection dogs and, and helping people to feel safe and secure and uh, live more peaceful lives. So of course, of course. congratulations on your um, five years and I wish you a lot of continued. Appreciate it. Hopefully it was, wasn't too boring and there wasn't too many, too many rants. Right? No, it was great. There's just a lot behind it. Right. And I know we're doing a, you're doing a live and, and an introduction and stuff like that, but um you know, there, there's a lot behind it and what we do, what we do. So, um, you know, appreciate you having us on here. I know we're on Byron's account right now, which is perfectly fine, but hey, happened, right? we problem solved. Um, but we're, we're always growing, right? And it's not just me. Like our staff is amazing. We got former law enforcement officers. We got people that have never trained a dog ever. And they've, they've learned underneath our, our program and wing. We have, veterans from all walks of life. Like we have special operations, you know, special forces veterans that are dog trainers here, um, as well as we just have civilians that are dog training. And, and each one brings a different, a different perception, outlook, 
character to the dog training, um, which I think makes us very palatable for our followers, our people that have our training, because it's not just, hey, these are some unapproachable uh, military type people like that does that stuff. Like, it's actually further from the truth. It's just we can understand a large range of lifestyles from, right? Teacup poodle, like doing obedience all the way to um, counseling on um, security measures and how to carry yourself. And so the whole gambit. Um, but I do think that having such an awesome team of uh, hard go-getting civilian trainers right um experienced veterans that have that have been through right the the pinnacle of conflict uh allows us to drive forward and like do all these things but we're also not stuck in our ways we're very open so it's like i probably learned something from you right like there's something that you, you could teach like i'm let me figure out how to how to market and and uh and uh, make some flagship dog <laughs> stuff like that, right? So we're very open and we're very approachable. I think we just bring a lot of cards to the table as a company and as a brand. Um, that way, anyone from behavior modification all the way to our, you know, premier family protection dogs, we can definitely take care of um, whoever that is and then make it very digestible for them to have an uh, amazing understanding and experience with either the animal that they have or the one that they have an interest or an intention on getting from us. Excellent. Awesome. Love it. Thank you, Eric. No, of course. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks for asking us. Have a good night and uh, enjoy the rest of your time in California. Will do. Thank you. Okay. Talk to you later. Bye.